2: Opening up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Rodgers is
3: streaking ahead and is onside. Beautiful play! That is that. Take a shot. <laughs> oh, the goal! By Kerscher. Goal! McLaughlin has it. Hard oh, deflection and a goal. Chester Mitchell. Huddle. Taylor has scored! And that surely means it's the Premier League for Swindon Town now! Fantastic! Oh my goal by Jan Björton! Harkin! Austin going in. Yes! New bat!
0: New bat! 2-0 Swindon! Danny wall!
1: It's not though, I will win this
2: league anyway! Richard. he's hit it! It's Krabbe! And oh, he strikes again! Mm.
0: jimmy
3: good afternoon oh
0: i've been after you for a long long time so i'm really happy that we finally able to connect and here we are i'm looking forward to this
3: no, it's no problem at all. It sounds a bit ominous though, that you've been asking me for a long time. I've got There's other people like that, like the tax man and things like that, mm. I think.
0: so. Really- yeah, out of the people that want to get you, I'm not as bad as the tax man, but I'm not going to ask any questions about your taxes, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, huge thanks. So we haven't got as long as I would usually like. That's not down to you. That's firmly down to me because I'm doing this during my lunch break. So we're going to get straight into this. So my my warm-up question is always... When you were younger, before you were in this racket, who did you support and who were your heroes?
3: Well, I was when I was young. Young, so I first started playing football really sort of in an organised way when I was about seven. And the team that was the top team at the time was Liverpool. So I had a big Liverpool poster on my wall, and obviously the likes of Kado O'Gleish and the big names, Um Ray Clements was in goal. And then they won everything back then. So obviously when you first, generally when you first start to support a club, my dad didn't really have a club. He wasn't really, he didn't really, wasn't really a big fan. He loved football, but he wasn't a big fan of a team. So, so it was Liverpool. And then not long after I started supporting him, really, I should say this, I didn't become a diehard, certainly not at seven years old. Um, Ray Clements moved to Tottenham Hotspur. So I, at this stage, I was just starting to get my, get my gloves wet. If, uh, excuse the term and, and diving around in goals so Ray Clements was my favourite keeper so I switched my allegiance to Spurs and then it was at the same sort of time that Tottenham were winning FA Cups and, and UEFA Cups so yeah so from a young age I kind of stuck with Tottenham so I am a Tottenham Hotspur fan which I said the other day in a hospitality lounge at, at Bournemouth just before they got tonked um, so that, that, that didn't leave me that, that that's a few laughs in my face
0: did you have Ozzy's dream on vinyl?
3: I did. I probably knew all the words as well, to be fair.
0: <laughs>
3: so a goalkeeper
0: from the start?
3: Yeah, pretty much. I About seven years old, I joined the Cub Scouts and, and my brother had been there and he'd played in the football team and I'd always gone to watch and excited about when it was my turn. Hmm. And it just so happened around that time that the goalie that I had for a few years had gone up into the Scouts and... And there was a vac- there was a vacancy. So remember the, the scout leader, Fred. He 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 asked one of the dads to take me over to the field at the back and kick some balls at me. So I remember there was a couple of logs put up as goals, and he was welling the ball at me, and I was diving, making saves, and he come back and said, "Yeah, yeah, he's all right." And he started that way. So I had a couple of years playing goal for the Cubs, um, and did really well, and I kind of took to it quite comfortably and quite naturally. Um, but then I also, I had this love of scoring goals as well. And 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 my last year in the Cubs, I actually played up front. They got another goal in, and I played up front, and I, I scored. I just used to score buckets of goals for the Cub Scouts. I think I scored seven in one game once, you know. And I just, I was always torn. And, and I know the conversation will go this way, but I was always torn from a very early age between playing goal, or playing playing up front. You know, I I, I loved them both equally if I'm honest but goalkeeping for me was then when I went and played on Sunday and I started I played in goal and then my dad took the team over and I played in goal for him for a few years but I'd always go but then I'd also go and play on a Saturday and go and play out front and then I'd play for the school and I'd play central defender and I just I just love playing in different positions.
0: Do you think that sort of versatility helped you progress into the pro game or or do you think really it was just so happened to be a great goalkeeper?
3: I think do you know what I actually I think is the reality of me, and I'm gonna sound immodest here but but I was I was a good goalkeeper in terms of I I naturally was a good goalkeeper. Technically I was poor, you know, but but in my defense I I didn't have much goalkeeping training at, at any of the clubs I was at and I was I was in the game for 13 years and I was at Premier League clubs and championship clubs and I probably had about 18 months of goalkeeping training at that stage. Now, I say training. I'm not talking about coaching like they've got nowadays. You know, there's no analysts and, and, and no coaches. There was no... It wasn't broken down on video to look at your technique and how you put your foot here and how you put your foot there. You know, we didn't ever have goalkeeping training. It wasn't even just an ex-goalie throwing a ball side to side. and trying, You know, so I think technically I was I was... I wasn't I never fulfilled my potential, but naturally i could I could I could play, and I, and it, that's what got me my career as a goalkeeper. And I think based on, as you said, the fact I love playing different positions from a natural point of view, it meant I read the game well. And that's how I thought. That's how I'd see myself. I could read the game.
0: yeah,
3: and and I've come across goalkeepers in recent years. That were very similar to Boric when I come back to Bournemouth. Fantastic goalkeeper, and he was a natural goalkeeper. And he would make saves that other keepers couldn't even dream of because he he, he read situations. And I think playing in the different positions, I think yeah, definitely definitely helped me with that.
0: Yeah, the the visibility of the goalkeeper coach only really started to emerge outside of football business in like the mid two thousands, didn't it? And I suppose it's because it simply wasn't there. They used to have like people come in for a little bit of time didn't they and, and do a bit of stuff but they didn't have a dedicated goalkeeper coach up until real re- really recently
3: yes exactly right and that, but, but that's in england on the continent very different on the continent they you had know, goalkeeping coaches you know for 10 years yeah. 20 years before that
2: Crazy. but in
3: in england you know we we you know we missed out on generations of, of goalkeepers in this country because of the lack of coaching yeah. because of the lack of understanding of the position. And then also from a management point of view, see nowadays, if a manager is unsure about a goalkeeper's movement or if, he, if, he, if he's unsure whether it's a goalkeeper's mistake or fault, he's got a goalkeeping coach to go and ask. And a goalkeeping coach will give a, generally try to, probably an unbiased, there might be a little bit of bias, because he's the one coaching him. But an unbiased opinion as to what happened, whereas you didn't have that in my day. You know, yeah. you were playing games and you know a goal would go in, through four sets of legs, take a deflection, go past you from six yards, and the manager would want to blame you, and you had no one back in back in your corner, as it were, no one explaining that. Well, hang on a second, yeah. and that was yeah, you know, that 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 played a massive part of my career, yeah. and actually, then it put me on the back foot from a young age, and you know, I, I'm quite, a, I was quite a, not volatile character in terms of of angry or, or or mean, just I was volatile probably emotionally, I was quite an emotional character. Yeah. Which again helps as well. I mean, it's just, you know, having emotions helps you. And it definitely helped me with my with my flair side of goalkeeping, but it didn't help me when people, managers, for instance, would come for you and, and and you think, well, that's really unfair, you know. But you're a lone voice because all the other players love it because if they if you're getting blamed, they're not, and that's yeah. all they're worried about. Half the time, you know, and managers were looking for someone to blame because because there always had to be someone to blame, certainly in football back when I was young. there was a much tougher game. And there are elements of that that are missed in the modern game. Don't get me wrong. You know, there are elements of the team spirit and the change room that would probably, you know, would, would, would do well in the modern game. Yeah. But the, but there's also an element of it where there was a lot of unfairness and, and, and a lot of players probably, probably lost their careers because of bias and, and you know, bad management. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's interesting nowadays when I, I look at all the people that work at AFC Bournemouth and me and the goalie coach, you know, the goalies will go out and there'll be five goalies and three goalie coaches. <laughs> you know, you'll have an analyst for the goalies. You'll have a drone going overhead. You'll have, you know, the, 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 the detail that goes into preparation of footballers in the modern game, and don't get me wrong, there are reasons for that. The money, of course.
0: If you don't mind, talk to me about your journey to Crystal Palace from being noticed to having the potential to be a pro footballer to I believe you're at Chelsea before you're at Palace and then and then making it to senior football
3: well again back when I was young it was a different journey you know you would you would play in your Sunday teams you would generally get noticed maybe play for the county you then get a scout from one of the clubs and, and where I grew up you know we had a few clubs around us Wimbledon Palace Fulham Chelsea a little bit further away but you know, we had a few clubs around us and you would get you would get picked up is the terminology, you know. Um, and I got scouted by a guy, funny enough, a guy that owned the shoe shop, clothes shop, school shop down the road at the bottom of the high street, and he was a scout for Chelsea and he ran a quite a successful Sunday team called Epsom Eagles and you know he was quite a good manager locally and he had always we'd played him many times and always lost eight nil. You know, but I, the team I played for in the early years wasn't actually a very good team. But but because of that, I got lots of practice. And for every eight I'd let in, I'd save twenty. You know, and when you, that, that's what they were looking at. So I got touted for, for for Chelsea when I was fourteen, and I went down there for about seven or eight weeks, I think. I remember turning up the first time, and and I had shorts on, and and they trained on the cinders, the red cinders up at Battersea Park that used to be there. And it just, you know, it was, it was a sh- it, by modern standards, it was a shambles. <laughs> you know, you're trying to judge young footballers, young goalkeepers, and whether they're willing to throw themselves around on cinders and, and concrete. You know, there were times that we trained in the shed behind Chelsea. Now, listen, those, in those days, they didn't have training facilities. The money was, wasn't was there. But but again, after about seven or eight weeks, I turned around and said, oh, no, we don't think you're good enough, you know, and, and off you go. I remember being very disappointed, but but then there was another manager, a guy called Vic Pennington, who who ran the most successful team in the area, and and he straight away contacted my dad and said, "Okay, well, I, I, can we take him down to Palace?" And I think Palace I had one training session on grass, the Palace down there, mini training ground, and and they offered me schoolboy
0: terms. Nice, nice, and and you, and you make it to senior, and you, you're in and around that that lovely football phrase. Um, the senior team from quite a young age, aren't you? Um, but you're one of the final generations where the culture of the season-long loan wasn't really a thing. And during your senior career, you, you you go to the Isthmian, but I think you're still only a teenager when you're playing for Dulwich Hamlet. And later in your Palace career, you have a couple of games, few games with Portsmouth and um loan moves where you're back up at Ginningham and Burnley. Do you wish the opportunities that goalkeepers, especially when they're young, have now where we've Swindon have just had Sol Brin play 46 games first season as a senior pro. He's just played every game this season every minute. But that wouldn't have happened in the late 80s, early 90s. Do you look back at that and go, God, I wish I'd just had a few you know, a couple of seasons on loan in League One, League Two.
3: Yeah, there's definitely an element of that. Although that being said, the the modern game is very different. Now now our structure was was once you once you'd finish school, you'd sign to their four players in the youth team under eighteen football. So you'd be an apprentice football, you'd play under eighteen football, you'd have a reserve team and then you'd have the first team. Now the under eighteen football's self explanatory, there's an under eighteen league there was two down the south called the South East counties, the the South East counties Division One had the more of the top teams in it. South East counties two had the, the lower teams, maybe not lower teams because Palace at the time were, were, were you know Championship Premier League thing. Um, but then you had your reserve side, and by the time you'd come out of the youth team, you were hitting 18. You should have been able to play men's football, and that and the reserve side was a mixture of your your, your first year pros that were coming out of the youth team and senior pros that weren't getting in the first team and the ones that would come back from injury so you right from an early age you was in there planning games with, with, with people that played 200, 300, 400 top division matches and you played a lot of these games were played at the main stadiums as well so you play Arsenal sometimes at Arsenal when you go out could be half the youth team of Palace and you're facing probably pretty much what would be another a first team level in League 1 or Championship League 1, League 2 sides. So. So it was a real it was a real learning curve and you, you it wasn't you didn't have time. You had to mature. As soon as you come out of the U team at eighteen, you had to mature. I think what led me to that though, and this is this is important, when I signed as a as a as a YTS apprentice, um mm. they already had a goalkeeper of his second year. He's actually a first year pro right? his name's Andy Andy Woodman, Woodman you've yeah. probably heard of him, yeah. So Woody was a first-year pro, but he had an August birthday, which meant he could play down a year. So the youth team loved that. So they kept him in the youth team for the year because he was older. And I came in as, as a 15-year-old just when I literally, when I left school and started at Palace a few days later. And then I was soon 16 in August. Again, I had an August birthday. But that season, I didn't get to play in the youth team matches. And it was frustrating for me. And then I got the call that I was going on loan to Dulwich Hamlet. That Dulwich Hamlet it were the League probably Division One at the time. They were a decent-sized club in what was non-league football by then, which was a much more, it was a tougher, decent standard of football. And that was a real learning curve when I was 16. You know, I was playing up against proper men, hard men, you know, people that love their football, that would go and do another job, but then come and play on a Saturday. It meant everything to them. Um, and for uh, I can't remember how many games I played for Dulwich, but I, I probably played a few months there. And it was just an unbelievable experience for me because I was, you know, I was I was coming back every game and I would stitches and cuts and bruises <laughs> and, you know, I'd getting volleyed in the face and all sorts. Because I'm young and naive as well. I, I played some under 18 football for Hawley when I was another year or two before that. I, I'd never played men's football to that level. So that was a great experience for me. And, and then I came out that season, Woody went on, he couldn't play in the youth team anymore and I got two years in the youth team. And and youth team football after that from a physical point of view was, was a breeze for me. You know, it was a breeze. I could kick the ball along with anyone else. I could take crosses above, you know, I was I was strong and, and powerful. And my second year at planning the team, my so my first year as a pro, we 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 got to the FA Youth Cup final, we won the youth league. And that was a that was a great experience. Um To play against the class of 92, that final against the Man United team, the famous Man United team, we played against them. And we lost narrowly, really, to be fair. I think it was was 3-1 at home, I think 3-2 up there, potentially. But it was such a great experience. The only problem was that that season I had picked up a couple of wrist injuries, wasn't sure what they were. In the final, I broke my finger as well, so I finished the final. ended up with two broken wrists and a broken finger. Um, I went the summer off, came back hoping my wrist would feel better, and they they yeah. didn't. And then I had, it turns out I fractured my scaphoid during the season before twice with my both hands. And fortunately I just um, signed a three-year contract, so it gave me time to to be injured. And by the way, I played on pitch every day when I was injured, obviously, because um, that was what you know. It's very different now. Obviously, rehabilitation is very different now to what it was then. Back then, it was, oh, you know, we'll see in a couple of weeks. <laughs> you know, but in the end, it, that gets a bit boring after after a while. So when my hands got out, once I'd done my operations and my hands were out of plaster and stuff, I'd just run around every day. And I'd be training with the first team many days, training up, up front with Chris Armstrong and, and players at Palace. You know, I'd be joining the 5 of sides and joining the small side of the games just to keep fitness up. But also because I loved it, I couldn't get enough, really.
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned Andy Woodman, but in terms of senior football throughout its time, you've got Perry Suckley and you've got Reese Wilmot near to the end of your career. And of course, during all of that, you've got Nigel Martin. If, if you're not in the top flight, he's generally considered one of the best goalkeepers outside of the top flight. So alongside our own Fraser Digby. So you, you, you're not realistically going to get a look in there. So eventually you do move on to the club that, even though I'm a Swindon fan, I associate you with Bournemouth as a player and I know a lot of people will say well the Carlisle goal but it's Bournemouth where you play most of your football and it's funny because I remember the 2-2 the only time I think you only played against Swindon in the seniors was a 2-2 where Swindon got the dodgiest penalty to equalise it was like a it was a deemed to be a handball but it was it couldn't have been further away from the poor guy's hand. It was hilarious. And Kevin Horlock does like the longest run-up and wallops it past you. And the other, the other memory I have of you when you were at Bournemouth, and I was absolutely certain of the game until I was doing my research for this, because you play the opposition twice in, in close succession. It's not long before you join Swindon, and it was against Bristol City. You played either a cup game or it was a one-nil win at Dean Court where Bristol City should have won by an absolute distance, but you had the game of your life. And the reason I watched that, the highlights anyway, is because obviously the local the local TV up this way included Bristol City, Swindon, Bristol Roaders. Yeah, of
3: course, yeah.
0: So, so I saw that and I was like, cool, he's good. Wouldn't mind him at Swindon. Um, was it the cup game or was it the league game?
3: It was actually the cup game. It was the second round, yeah. the FA Cup. 3-1. Yeah, 3-1 for the first time in... That, uh, probably ever Bournemouth were selected for a, a live Sky Sports Sunday afternoon game, and the reason being is because Bristol City at that point were top of the, of, I think was it League Two back then,
0: League One. And they, um,
3: yeah, which is League One now equivalent. They were top of League One. They 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 won their last thirteen games or something on the bounce. They would you know they were they were flying, and they'd, so they they put it on. A cup on Sky Sports down at the old Dean Court. So people think the new Dean Court's smaller. They should they should look at the old Dean Court. And it was it was a December. It was whirling rain and wind. And yeah, I, I it was one of them days. And and my character always dictated that if I'm live on telly, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna try and make the most of it. And unfortunately, I had some saves to make. And at the end, I got man a match, which was great. Um, that was probably that, that's. You know, one of my best memories of Bournemouth, and you're right. Most of my football was played at Bournemouth. You know, it was week to week, day to day football. Um, unfortunately, I I never really saw it right to eye with Mel Maitland, the manager, from very early on, which is a shame, because because I I love being at the club. I love playing football. You're quite right. I was, you know, I, I was at Palace some seven years, I think, and I just couldn't get a look in past Nigel. He was, I mean, he was. He was one of the best, probably the best. I mean, he was England's number two. Outside of David Seaman at the time, it was probably Nigel Marham was the best goalkeeper in the country. Um, so I was never going to get a look in there. So I, I knocked on, it was a Dave Bassett's door. He just took over as the manager of Palace and I said, I just need to I need to play football. I said, nothing against you. I just want to play football. Next day, I was signing for Bournemouth. And I signed two and a half years. As I just said, it was quite early into that contract. Whereas I, I probably wouldn't sign no one. But, you know, I got to play over 100 games for Bournemouth and, and played some some great matches and got to got a to win swing final in 98 at, at Wembley against Grimsby, which we lost and it's according to It's never an own goal, it's never an own I goal know, I know, that always that me, I'm still on the goal line and it's hit, <laughs> hit on the inside of the leg and goes in oh. but do um, but you know what at the time I was really annoyed a couple of years later when I'm saying my taxi, reflecting on my career, do you know what, if I'm the only keeper that's scoring an own goal here at Wembley, I'll take it <laughs>
0: It's ridiculous. It's, I, I watched it loads of times to think, are they thinking it's going to like, hit the far post? But it's so central; it's always going in. It's Kingsley Black, oh, isn't no. it? And it is um, Kingsley Black. I feel sorry for him as well, to be fair, because he's been denied a goal as a result. So. But he is. But I, when, when I was doing the research, I was expecting to see the, the classic off the post and in, or, or something like that, um, a genuine diversion. But oh, it's not an own goal. Not. Do you know it, what? Do you
3: know what it reflects? And I, I don't want to. So I don't want this to be a poor me thing here because I, I I try not to to do that. And at times in my career, I felt that if I'm honest, you know, when you when you're flying in the U2 and then you go and break both your skateboards and don't play for 20 months, is you know you think really? And then a the couple of times when I just got ahead then and I tear a cartilage in my knee, and I'm like really, you know, and and the but the, the, the bournemouth thing, you think you do, you do look back and you think really really why would you give a go and go? You know, why does it have to be an own goal? Yeah. You know, but, you know, the year after that, I scored another goal. So, obviously, you know, was, I think there was something about my career. I know I know. this is how I kind of sum my career up. You know, I won't go too mad because I don't have a bit of time left. But I always feel like football gave me what I deserved. And generally in life, generally, and this isn't always the rule. there's always exceptions, you, you get what you deserve. And, and... I didn't put enough effort into football. It took me a long time to work that out. When I when I retired, I wrote a book, and it was a bit quite a, an angry book about football. Mm. And there were, <laughs> there were good reasons as well, because because the game of football at the time was unprofessional, and it, you know there was a lot of a lot of people in positions they shouldn't have been dictating the lives of young players that you know they shouldn't have been doing. But the reality was, I, I I didn't apply myself, and it took me many years in the taxi, sat there working it all out. I didn't apply myself as well as I could, and that's something that I I learned later on. So the reality of 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 football, you know, I was a, just a natural based goalkeeper, and I didn't put enough work in myself personally, and and what it did in the end, football probably. It recognised that I wasn't going to have some sparkling career and give me 800 games and England cap. But it, it, it did did recognise the fact I also loved the game and, and in the end it gave me a moment.
0: Yeah, certainly did. That's a, That was really, really well put and it's kind of taken the the fact that my next question was going to be about just how baggy shorts were at Bournemouth in the mid-90s. It kind of takes, it makes it kind of pointless, but they were pretty baggy, weren't they? <laughs>
3: They were pretty baggy to be from the goalies' <laughs> shirts. were baggy. I mean, oh. well, I mean, you, you could fit three goalies in the one. Of the goalies' shirts in them days.
0: Incredible. You play alongside some of the 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 names with Bournemouth, where you think, oh, they were there in the mid nineties. You know, Eddie Howe, Stephen Fletcher, Neil Young, and also former Swindon player Jamie Vincent, who's no longer with us, and. and I, I always feel back because I didn't do an episode with Jamie Vincent. I didn't even do a tribute episode because he was really quite useful for us in the in the tail end of his career, but um, a really useful player during that time too.
3: Well, I played Jamie and I started. Well, he was a, he was a couple of years younger, maybe maybe a year younger, but we started at uh, a Palace together, so we're in the youth Palace together. And um, so I'd known him for a long time, and then we went to to Bournemouth together, and we played. We lived together at Bournemouth. And then I had left Swindon by the time he went to Swindon. But I, don't, I knew Jamie really well. You know, we were really close, uh, along with uh, another guy, Paul Sparrow, that we're at Palace with. Him. He was Jamie's best mate. Yeah. And it, it, do you know what? He, he was the funniest guy you'll ever meet, first and foremost. You know, he's such a large and life character. But he was, his left foot was like a magician's wand. You know, he had a class about him and a style and a grace about him up on, the, on the left-hand side. And, and when you needed a bit of quality from him, whether it be a, for, for, for a cross on the run or a, or a, or a free-kick delivery, he, he was just a – he had a beautiful left foot. And I think anyone that ever saw him play, Jamie, and he played for a few clubs and he played well for a few clubs, and I think he was always a quiet fan's favourite. They noticed the quality in him. And it was, it was a sad loss. Um, yeah. It was a sad loss when he passed um, because he was such a vibrant, vibrant character and he is sorely missed.
0: Yeah,
3: 100%. Very quickly,
0: Eddie Howe, did you ever have an inkling that he would become a top flight manager when he was
3: a, when he was playing? I can tell you now, he never had an inkling he would become a top <laughs> flight manager. When he, was playing. Uh, he um, Eddie, Eddie, when he was young, was a very straight-laced character and he was—he was young when, when I was playing in the team. I think he was only eighteen or so, and he got himself in the team. And he was—he was a real resolute character. He worked really hard. In his own admission, he wasn't the most naturally gifted footballer. Um, he had to work really hard at it, and he did. Very, very articulate lad, you know. He was—he was always a bit different, um, but quiet, you know, really quiet, and not the sort of person that you would think would have the skills. To, to, to be a manager, let alone a top flight manager. Yeah. And I, 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 when I left football and I walked away, I didn't see Eddie for many years. And, and I followed his career and where he went. He went to Portsmouth, back to Bournemouth. And then realised that his knee wasn't any good and he stopped playing. But I didn't really see his emergence in terms of his desire to coach. And, and what Eddie is, and it's important people to understand, is Eddie's a coach. Eddie's real skill is to take a footballer and to get him to be the best version of himself and give him all the tools and all the means to do it. And he's a hard taskmaster because if, if, if he puts his time into you, you're going to get the best quality coach you could possibly imagine. If you start messing around, then you're out. You won't, he doesn't suffer fault. But he's had to learn and develop skills in himself. Um, and he'll admit to this as well. He's had to develop skills in himself that, that he wouldn't have known what he had when he was younger. But I think he's testament to what can be achieved as well. You know, people put limits on themselves. What Eddie did was he never put limits on himself. You know, he he, he learned, he took his time and learned his trade. He was given an opportunity very young. Probably at the time he would have thought, "Oh wow, really? You know, this is a massive thing for me to take on." But he did it, and he grabbed it with both hands, and he ran with it, and he learned. He read every book, he studied every every coach. You know what you're seeing from Eddie Howe now. He, it's, it's years and years. Well, let's be honest now. What is this? It's, it's, it's probably nearly fifteen years of someone taking it to the limit. And yeah. and basically, if you worked with him or for him, he would make sure you were going to the limit as well. And you know what he achieved at at Bournemouth was 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 nothing short sure of a miracle compared to where the clubs are. Yeah. Uh, so therefore, what he's now doing at Newcastle, a club with means, a club with a fan base, a stadium, a history, is no surprise to anyone that knows it. Yeah. You know, don't, don't get me wrong, I mean, I'm sure he quietly will pinch himself, but, but the reality <laughs> is those that have worked with him and understand him know that he is the full ticket. And yeah. Newcastle Newcastle are very, very fortunate to have Eddie Howe, because he, he can gradually, bit by bit, if they do it right, he can turn them into a very successful club, which is, I know, what they're desperate to be. Alan. Robinson. Allison. Oh, what a good save. Jimmy Glass. He's not had too much to do so far today. Copping pick the ball out the net once. And just before half-time, it was off a pretty useful
0: save. Right, so here we go. So, Jimmy, I've read a fair few footballers autobiographies and as you've implied already um, well let's just put it this way more often than not they be they can be quite disappointing and they they just scratch the surface and you always think that there's definitely way way more to this and sometimes you think well that's just an outright lie even in the podcast world world I've I've talked to people and I've I've gone I've thought to myself I don't necessarily think that's true I'm not saying that all autobiographies and all podcast interviews or any interview should be warts and all, but yours does not lack insight, shall we say. And it it didn't leave me thinking, Oh, I wonder if Jimmy really liked his time at Swindon or not. (laughs) Um, Going, going back a step when you, when you look at it on paper, given that Bournemouth were actually on the rise slowly. I think your last season is a pretty, Successful one, close to the playoffs. Considering what you'd gone through the, in the seasons before, where you're sort of like lower mid-table, um, Swindon Town, second tier, four-year contract, feels like a no-brainer. Did did you know or did you have any inkling of how much financial trouble Swindon were in when you rocked up?
3: No, I think one of my one of my shortcomings as a, as, a, as a player is is I wasn't really aware of football. Other clubs, other towns, other teams. You know, I I I just loved playing football. I wasn't a stato, you know, and and all I knew about other clubs was when I'd gone and played there. And you go, oh, okay, that's a nice stadium compared to Bournemouth. Swindon Town was a lovely stadium, you know, compared to Bournemouth at the time. Swindon Town was a championship club that had been, you know, a Premier League club had some had some sunny days, of which. Bournemouth had never had me, you know, and 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 when I was, it was that summer. It was a summer. It was a summer. Uh, my contract expired, and I I had a few off like sort of sniffs of clubs. I thought I'd have a few more because I'd done reasonably well at Bournemouth in my time there, you know, and but it, there wasn't loads of clubs sort of approaching my. Agent at the time, Gary O'Neill. It's funny because I'm just I'm just listening to Simon Jordan's ebook at the moment. He's, he's talking about Mark Goldberg at this point, and Mark Goldberg, along with his other magical things, he tried to do. had an agency, and Gary O'Neill was his, one of his guys. And I'd played with Gary; he was now my agent. And I remember going on holiday to of Cyprus and and uh, my girlfriend at the time, and, and waiting for the phone to ring. It just wasn't ringing, and I'm thinking, "Oh, really?" And then Swindon came in, Steve McMahon, who obviously I, I knew of, you know, and Gary messaged me saying, oh, Swindon, wanna, you know, Swindon want to you I literally got on a plane and flew back from Cyprus. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll come home now, because I wanted to get it done. I'm then being told to wait by the agents, you know, and then they're, they're faffing around. So what happened was I, I actually got in my car with my girlfriend at the time Drove to Swindon just to look around the place and look at the club and that. And I walk in there and Steve's there. He's like, well, What are we waiting for? You know, I'm going to put in a hotel that night. And the next day, I'll sign a four year deal with Swindon. All I knew of Swindon was Steve McMahon. And I thought, Yeah, he's a straight laced, hard midfielder sort of guy I want to work with. I just, like I say, I had issues with my Machin. And I was excited about working with Steve because obviously, you know, he, he was a massive name in football with his um, fantastic career at Liverpool. So I was excited. I was excited about signing for Swindon Town. And I and I was excited about going in pre-season. I played most of the pre-season games. You know, I hadn't really conceded many goals. I didn't anything spectacular, but I was carrying on from my playing at Bournemouth and thought, OK, well, I'm going to start the season. And Steve never guaranteed me I was going to start the season, but he, he didn't also say, oh, by the way. I'm gonna. You know, I'm not. So first game of the season away at Sheffield United. I'm really excited now because I'm thinking right, Championship football. I would had a taste of it for Portsmouth. I should be playing higher than probably what I was after I come down from Palace. I, I, I had an opportunity to sign for Portsmouth and they were dragging and dragging and dragging. So I, I so I resigned for Palace and then Portsmouth phoned me the next day. I, so I could have been playing Championship for many years before. You know, so I'm like right, it's my time now. Here we go. And I remember the first game of the season and like, football, the Premier League, booming and the champions, there's big clubs like Sheffield United and in the championship. Like, Let's go. And Steve told the team like in the dressing room before the game who was playing. And I remember sitting there and he said, right, in goal, Frank Talia. And I just remember just the, the wind just got knocked out of me. You know, I've been, I had that 20, 20 months injury. I've gone to Bournemouth. I hadn't gone with a manager, but I've done well. I'm just thinking. And it just, it's knocked the stuffing out of me. And then they played, they lost 2 1, I think it was, to Sheffield United. I then get the nod on the, I get the nod on the, um, sorry, I'm just watching four players driving a Mustang with the roof down. <laughs>
0: It's a different world, different world.
3: Yeah, it's an old one, actually, one that I won't say. One of the lads bought himself an old Mustang. It's really lovely. It's, old, it's a left-hand drive one. It's got a 4.6-litre engine. And they're zooming around. The, they'll probably get sold off by the, the maintenance in the mirror for driving too fast around the stadium.
0: Um,
3: so, yeah, I forgot where I was there. Where was I? So, yeah, I signed for Swindon, desperate to do well. First day of the season, got knocked back. Played the second game away at Wickham. Won. I think, 2-1. Might be home to the weekend actually. It's home yeah, to weekend. in the Cup, one, yeah. Two, yeah, in the Cup. And I thought, OK, well, I'm going to play. Don't change your winning team. am going to play. Bang, next going French had back in goal. And I just couldn't get it. I just didn't understand it. And Steve didn't sort of sit me down and say, right, this is why. Because that, that wasn't his style. So, right, in the first few months, I was straight away, it, it kind of left a dent. in me. It, it left like a, a scar and... And I play, was playing reserve games and, you know, doing my best and that. But I just wasn't enjoying it at all.
0: Well, your one league game was against Oxford, you know, yeah, it was the first half of
3: the season. Basically, weapon happened was, I wasn't playing goal. And then I was playing reserve games and we played QPR at the county ground. And then we got beat 4-0. Now, playing for QPR was Vinnie Jones at the time. And Steve obviously hated Vinnie Jones. You know, he just couldn't <laughs> stand him. He completely polar opposites of footballers. Steve was a classy, brilliant, you know, footballer. Vinnie Jones was, was the complete opposite. And I think Vinnie might have wiped him out in the first minute of the cup final as well when, when we'd have done him. Mm. So I think he never, he never forgave him for that. So we're playing them and, and we lose four and the reserve teams embarrassment. Vinnie scores from about 25 yards as well to make it worse. So we come in out the game and Steve's like, he's fuming. And, uh, and basically he, he went around the room and then he came for me and I, and I just, I lost my shit and I took my boots off my gloves off and threw him in the middle. He's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm done. He, what do you mean you're done? I said, I'm done. I'm done. I said, I'm done. I don't even like you. I'm done. <laughs> and like, the whole room just went quiet. Cause like, obviously when Steve went, he went, you know, he had, the, they had that fiery temper. And it's funny. And he and at that point, and that was one of the only points we did, that, that we had a goalie coach, um, and there was a lad, I can't remember his name now, maybe Paul, Paul Williams, I say He'd been around Italy and he'd come to Swindon and he'd been paid by the day and he was there for a couple of weeks. And he'd been to Swindon, he'd been around Europe and he'd go with all this information about goalkeeping coaching and he had it like in a file, you know. And I think he was in Swindon one night and he had his car broken into and his bag nicked and lost his life's work for goalkeeping coaching, you know. So, um, so. And he said, well, "What about what about him? Do you like him?" I went, "Yeah, I like him." He went, well, you tell him?" <laughs> I never just anyway. I went home that night, and um, and I thought, oh, "What have I done now?" I, I didn't get with Mel Machin. I've come to Swindon. I know I felt out of state. It's not what I wanted to do. It's not wasn't what, who I was as a player. I wasn't trouble. I wasn't you know. I just if I felt something like was unfair, I'd just say, "Well, that's unfair. I'm not having it." So the next morning I went in. Knocked on his door, and I just said, look, I said, I'm sorry. I said, I was out of order. So I should have said that. It's not how I feel. It's not true. He went, no, you're all right, son. He said, oh. he said I know you're not a bad egg. He said, "He said there are some bad eggs here. He said, I know but you're not one of them. He said, have a week <laughs> off. I, do, I just said, I'm not really enjoying it. I'm not enjoying being here. I'm not enjoying the town. I'm just not enjoying the moment being here. And he said, look, have a week off. So I, I basically had a week off, and I went away. And I played golf, all right? So I just trying to get my brain away. Right. And then I got a call, which was a Tuesday. I, I'm sure it was a Tuesday. I'm sure it might have, actually, I be, might be playing golf on the Monday. i will get a call. They've got, they've got Oxford at home on the Tuesday night. And, uh, Frank has injured himself in, in training or whatever. He said, why are you playing? So I literally don't put my gloves on all week. Um, <laughs> so I turned up, probably, I'd imagine I turned up straight to the game, put my gloves on, and we ended up winning. Um, what was it 3-1, was it? Or four. 4-1, was it? Big night, big night for Swindon against the rivals, obviously. You know, and I played all right. Made a couple of saves. I mean, Joey Beecham was playing for them at that point. I think he'd come through one-on-one on my saves. And and it was just a good night. I thought, here we go. I thought, here we go. This is what it's a crowd's going mental. Everyone's happy. Great night at the County Ground. And then, like, in the last nine minutes, I went up for a cross, took the cross, you know, and someone went through me and just smashed me in the leg. And as I come down I thought, oh that hurts. And basically got to a change and my leg just my leg just swell up. I basically got a dead leg. Yeah. A hematoma, whatever you call it. And I can't play on the Saturday. You know, and I just there were so many times in my career like that where it's, it's I thought, right, it's done. This I'm in. And then something would go, you know, so there'd be a left turn somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, I th- and that just represented my time at Swindon, and then obviously I got injured, got back again. Frank was in goal, and and then Steve got the sack because the team was struggling, and then they appoint Jimmy Quinn. I didn't really know Jimmy. I met him a couple of times at Bournemouth because he played for Bournemouth a few games. And I thought, okay, well maybe this would be better, but however was, how <laughs> wrong I was!
2: How wrong I
3: was! I didn't hold back how I felt about Jimmy Quinn in my book. Really, it's, it's all in there. I, I've got. I've got to tell you, Jimmy Quinn was, and probably still is, one of the best forwards I've ever seen. You know, he was. He was awesome. He was. He was an awesome centre forward, Jimmy Quinn. Um, just scored goals. You know, absolute handful. But I think, I think he then thought that that meant that you had to respect him as a manager, and, and his managerial skills went up to his centre forward skills. Um, and unfortunately, the the relationship just didn't go and. And and the times I did get in a team is when the team were really struggling. So you you know, well, you probably being a goalie when you're getting your team generally is because your team are really struggling, and and you're not suddenly going to come in and change it around because you're the goalie. You might be able to make a couple more saves where the other lads not, but chances are you're going to make mistakes here and there. But if you're getting plenty of play, and the the big one come, the big one come. Obviously, um, well, funny enough. I, I I didn't get into the team and we didn't reach the eye to eye. And then obviously Carlisle come in for me at the end of that season. So this is, uh, this is 1999. I'm very popular. So they can ring me. And, um, <laughs> and I think, and I genuinely believe that he sent me on to Carlisle, wanted me to go on to Carlisle, get rid of me just to, just to, so I could go to the bottom end of the football league and fail.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, and I genuinely believe that's that's what happened. When he he called me his office, he said, Carlisle, come along line for you. Do you want to go? I'm like, yeah. It's like three games for the end of the season. I'm like, yeah, I want to go. Because I just wanted to play football. And I, I didn't even know Carlisle were in relegation trouble. <laughs> you know, the only thing I knew about Carlisle was it was a long drive. <laughs> you know, I played there for Bournemouth a few times and it was a long drive. But I didn't know they were in relegation trouble. I just said yes. And and obviously, um. It didn't quite go as as Jimmy Quinn planned, really.
0: No, it did not. And I think we all know what happens next. Uh, You play three games. Carlisle lose none of them, draw the first two. And then the big one against Plymouth on the final day. Scarborough think they're safe. They're on the pitch celebrating. And, you know, we're going to play the audio over right now. In the Football
3: League, no goalkeeper's ever scored in this situation, but it had to be worth a try. What a time to rewrite the record books. Jimmy wasn't even a Carlisle player. He was on loan from Swindon. He never played for Carlisle again.
0: In only his third game for Carlisle, Jimmy Glass had etched his name forevermore into football history, and astounded those who thought all was lost. And it's your defining moment, and it, it's really weird because it, it, I'm 15 at this time, and I know where I was when this goal went in. You know, and it's not a really hard one to. I was watching Jess Ellen on Soccer Saturday, you know, and. And watch it and listening through. And and it was weird because despite everything, you've got this weird Swindon Pride where you're sort of sat there going, that's a Swindon player that's done it. You you're somehow taking credit for it, even though the reason you're there is because everything has gone wrong for you at Swindon. But it, it's one of the last moments in football pre-the internet age where it is this huge, huge event. And it defies your career, it defines your career in so many ways. And especially afterwards, what is, I mean, the, the whole backstory to what happened next is what I'm more interested in. You know, we've, we've all heard like corner comes in, it, there's a little bit of a melee, you, you stick it in, you celebrate and it, it all goes crazy and Carlisle stay up. But, what interests me most is what happened after because, I mean, we all shrug our shoulders and go, well, of course, he's going to go to Carlisle now and play 350 games and, and have a statue and, and that be that. But uh, as we all know, you don't play again.
3: And Swindon play their part in that. They, um... So what happened immediately after, which is quite a funny little story, Brian Burrows was, was, was a tyrant um, at the end of that season. I'm a bit of a sweat up here, I'm saying my car. Brian Burrows was starting in that season, so the, after the night after the, the goal, I went into town. If I'm honest, it should have been night of my life, but it wasn't. I ended up just sliding off out the back door of a, a nightclub, going back to the hotel. Got in my car, I'm driving back down to Swindon. I was supposed to be me my girlfriend, not in not the night before, and I told her I wasn't coming, so she had the hump. So I'm driving back down to Swindon to come and see Brian Burrows for his, for his like, final drinks, because Bournemouth and uh, Swindon are playing Barnsley on the last day of the season, which was the Sunday. Um, and I'm driving through all the different counties, and I'm ca- catching glimpses on the radio of, is that about me? Is that... No, I'm not sure, anyway. And I haven't seen any newspapers. I haven't really seen anything. You know, my friends have phoned me and parents and family, and you know, but I haven't really seen much of the media coverage it got. You know, um, So I arrived back in Swindon and they're playing Barnsley and I get there probably just for half time and I go through the offices and upstairs and to the the, the stand and the lads that aren't playing, the raggy dolls we used to call ourselves, (laughs) were sat there watching the game and they just, they turn around, they see me and they just, they all stand up and start clapping. And then... Like uh, all the Swindon fans sort of realised that I've just arrived in the stadium, and then the photographers at the start of the uh, down by the pitch all turn around and they start phot- photographing the stand instead of the game, and that's kind of the first moment I got where I thought, actually, wow, this, you know, it's, this isn't just a this isn't just in Cumbria. You know, this is this is travelled. This is a football story. And then I remember after the game, I can't remember what the score was. It two or maybe it might be two or It wasn't an epic. Last game of the season, I think, from winner The lads are in the change room having their debrief, and I'm, there's a little corridor that went into the home change room, and we all stood there. And the lads, the lads that weren't playing, go on, just walk in, just walk in, just walk in. So I just walked into the middle of the change room and just stood there, and they all just looked at me, and then everybody to just everyone just burst out laughing because I'd, I'd played, I'd played on pitch for Swindon, I would played on pitch in training. Um, you know, they knew I love running around on pitch, scoring goals. So they just laughed and I think small, she said to me, only you. I said, only, only, that could only happen to you. And that was probably the nicest moment. <laughs> I <had at> Swindon. <laughs> 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 that was probably the nicest moment I had at Swindon. Um, and then, yeah, there was talk, Carlisle wanted to sign me, Michael Knight, went wanted to sign me, but he asked me what I wanted. And I said, well, pay me what I want at Swindon, which was something like, seven hundred pounds a week and give me ten grand. Bear in mind I've just saved him millions probably. And um and and all I got back someone a journalist said to me, said, Are you gonna sign Jimmy Glass not long after he said, Well you've got to lower his wage demands. Yeah, I w I don't think I wouldn't have even been a top owner of the club basically. And it just didn't happen and, and and I was left at Swindon. I still had probably three years left of a contract at Swindon. Um not really getting on with Jimmy Quinn. Didn't really know where it left me. Um, but there was no one else to went to sign me, which at the time people maybe think was, was strange, but the, the reality was, you know, if, if it had been nowadays, I probably would have had offers coming out of my ears but, because, you know, footballing goalkeepers back then weren't really revered. They were frowned upon, if anything. Whereas nowadays, if you can play with your feet and you can, you got a bit of composure, about it and you you got a bit of balls, you know, you're worth you're worth millions. So yeah, th- it was it was funny that the aftermath was was an anticlimax, you know, for something that was such a sensational football story. And it was a football story. It wasn't about me, or or even to a degree about Carlisle. We're the ones that always get the the plaudits for it. But it was a football story. It just showed how beautiful football is and how what a beautiful game it can be and. Sunny how you can go from despair. And most fans, most clubs understand this, you you can go from despair to elation in a click of a finger. You know, and, and that's why we all love it. That's why we love football. Yeah.
0: it's weird because having that moment of glory at the basement of the football league, and then you're probably sort of disheartened when you are you have that one run at Swindon where you are regular in October. Of, of that of that year in 99 but you're probably just like you know swindon are at their knees this is a time where swindon fans or swindon town are hemorrhaging fans there are people from this era and i include my dad in that where they stopped going and they never went back because of the way the club was ran the way it was this is championship level the last season in the championship and we're getting crowds that we've almost had double of this season, yeah. it, it's, it's a really, really bleak time. I didn't appreciate it at the time as a, as a, someone who was in like, what year 11 of school, 15, 16, but like the impact that this era had, and it, it impacted you for various reasons. It hadn't impacted the whole club of, of what was happening behind the scenes.
3: Well, I always see, I'm quite, a am quite an honest character. You know, I'm quite, a will whatever club I'm playing for, they'll get everything I've got. You know, I'll, in lots of ways do lots of stuff off the pitch you know Um media well, I'll, I'll do everything they, I, I never really hold anything back but I just I, but I'm also I'm also someone that feeds off the vibes and the vibrations of what's going on you know and uh, Jimmy Quinn was a disaster for Swindon at that point from a footballing point of view off the pitch I can't tell you too much about the, the mechanics and who had money and who didn't where they were going but it was clear they were they were struggling financially. But on the pitch, it was just, you know, we were playing games and, and I'll give you an example. My last game away at Bolton, the one where, the, you know, I, I got a lot of stick for, for the manager. You know, we didn't have a shot on their goal the entire game. You know, and, and basically I would kept the ball out for probably 88 minutes and I, I wouldn't say my breathtaking saves, but I was pretty solid and, you know, was and in the end I made a mistake and the ball slipped in under my body. You know, the crap bit of goalkeeping. But was it the reason that we didn't get the points? You know, you could look at it and go with it is, but it's not. The the team at the time were so uninspired. The team were, were going through the motions. You know, I just, all I wanted to do was desperately play football and I was doing my best. But again, I probably didn't have any, I think the goalie coach we had, we had to pay for ourselves at the time, John Granville so nice lad, John, we don't have to come in on a day off and pay for him because there's any day of the week he could do it. The whole thing was just mentally, it was it was poor, mm. you know? And one of the things, I'll go back to Eddie Hunter, one of the things I've, I learned from Ed, and it was something that was always in my mind, and probably something that drew me back into football, was it's the club's responsibility. Yeah, listen, they pay the players. So players, you can argue, players should be mentally 100% all the time, but they're human beings. It's the club's responsibility to run things properly. You know, it's a club's responsibility to, 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 to not mess around. You haven't got to have a bucket of money to be professional. You know. And, and by doing that and by setting those standards, and this, was Eddie's, this is actually Eddie's, if I'm honest, this is his secret. I'm about to give his a secret away. He probably won't like it. <laughs> but the reality of why Bournemouth succeeded is because Eddie Howe and his team around him, and then therefore the club, because he pretty much ran that show as well, um, they did everything properly to the best way they could possibly manage given the the, the, the the resources they had so a player could never turn around and criticize a club and go well that's 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 crap that's not good that's not professional you know so when you do that as a club you can demand the highest of, of attitudes and the highest of mentality from the players that you're paying. But that wasn't what Swindon was at the time. It was a, sorry, it was a shit show.
0: Yeah.
3: Off the pitch, it was a shit show. On the and, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about it because they didn't have the money. Because like I say money, that's the nature of football. But the people that are running the club, the people who operate operating it, and, and, and therefore then the football management, it was just a shit show. And I didn't respond well to that stuff. It, it, like it kind of sucked the life out of me, you know. And that that and that is my memory of Swindon. And like you said, now for you to say that as a fan that 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 era, that period of time was was what basically has has, has left when then, or, or created the, the the following years. It makes sense because that's how it felt as a player.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and, and what happens follow and what happens afterwards, you know, is well documented within your your book and also countless articles. Because we we've got to close here, but what happens is you go from club to club, you end up in non-league retiring at an age for a goalkeeper, which is no age at all. So like 31, when, you know, goalkeepers can go to in their forties, you go out, you leave football together, but now you're back. Does your view of your career evolve over time? Or as you say, you know, I think you, you mentioned it earlier, like it all sort of comes back around essentially, doesn't it? And you get what you you take from the game. But does it evolve around time, or do you? Is it hard for you to work in football and and not sort of look back at your career and go, if they would have only just released me, or you know, if this move would have just worked out, it would have been a completely different thing.
3: Of course, of course it is, and do you know why? Thirteen years sat in a taxi to reflect, and that and actually, crazy enough, thirteen years sat in a taxi. If, if that, that doesn't sort anyone out and give you a perspective on life, then 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 you're a fool. Um. But the truth of the matter is, and and I think ultimately what you learn eventually, and this is something that I try to occasionally pass on to the players if, if if the moment's right. I'm not a psychologist. I don't get involved too much, but I am experienced. I've been there. You know, I've made all the mistakes you probably don't want to make. And, and I've had some great moments as well. But one of the things that I've learned from it, and this is a, a lesson, this isn't just football, this is life is you have the responsibility individually to be the best version of yourself, regardless of what's going on around you. That, that's that's all our responsibilities. Yeah. You know, the truth of the matter is, you know, if I hadn't had trauma my contracts up, John Gorman comes in, maybe it changes a little bit for me. You know, I made decisions and, and decisions that seem right at the time. But the, but if I look back now, if I had someone like me now talking to me now, I'll go, well, Jimmy Quinn's going to get the sack in the next four weeks. You just sit tight. If it means you've got to play in the U team or whatever, then play in the U team. You know, train with the youth team, fine. And it's those sorts of things. I, I let myself down by my own naivety at times, not through my passion and love for the game, but my, my own naivety. And so, if I sit back now, wishing that I'd done things differently then, and things had gone differently for me then, I haven't learned anything. Yeah, you know, the reality is, you can only live in the moment. You know, mm-hmm. and right now in this moment, and for the last six, seven years, I've been a player agent on AOC Bournemouth. I've been fortunate enough to be on a journey with this club which has been nothing short of spectacular working with probably the best young manager in the game who now is showing everyone that he's the best young manager in the game, you know? Mm-hmm. So life happens for a reason. I've got two beautiful children, you know, I've got a wonderful, I've got a wonderful wife, um, recently got married actually last week, remarried, mm-hmm. you know, um, my life's good. And, and I've got plans for the future and, and what you have to do is learn from the things that have gone in your life and 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 plan for the future, because what you do today will reflect on tomorrow. And they're the things I didn't know as a young goalkeeper.
0: Lovely. Jimmy Glass, what a what a great way to end it. Thank you very much.
3: No worries, Rich. Great chat, mate.
0: The Low Strangers is an independent supporters podcast. Views given do not reflect those of Swindon Town Football Club or their official partners. The music is provided by the great Matthew Kilford and the podcast artwork was designed by Matt in Singapore. What a guy. Thanks for listening.
2: Come on Swindon, I a bubble. about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football.
1: Hi LS Pod fans, it's J R here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy,